This is Inspiring Nurseries podcast for nursery managers and owners and all those inspiring to be leaders in the early years sector. We are one of the only UK-based early years specialist podcasts bringing you trusted consultants, trainers and leaders in the so industry. So join me, Kate, co-founder of Hello Mums. And me, Marnie, founder of Sporty Minis. And make sure you subscribe because we know you're a busy professional and we also know that you will not want to miss this show. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and would love a review on iTunes. Hello and welcome to today's Inspiring Nurseries podcast where we will be talking about financial survival in the early years sector. Uh, this is Kate from Hello Mums and my co-host Marnie is here with me from Sporty Minis. And today we are going to be asking some fun questions to or from Dougie, who is a financial director for many, many startups. Dougie, hello. And do you want to say a few things about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'll start by saying I'm not sure many people have described finance questions as fun questions, but I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to take that on today. Um, so yeah, so I guess as a, a bit of background, my industry experience is, is not in the early years. It's uh, predominantly in hospitality and some other industries. Um, but I think there's a lot of cross-learnings across the industries that should be useful for the listeners. Um, and I think the hospitality industry essentially was impacted by coronavirus at the tip of the spear in a similar way as the early years were impacted. There wasn't much warning. There was very fast shutdown of operations um, and a lot of uncertainty about how and when um, things will come back up in the future. So, um, yeah, hopefully I can share some relevant experiences and some insight for your listeners. Yes, like you said, everything just happened all at a at an incredible fast pace. And what we know now today is the twelfth of May, two thousand twenty, and on Sunday, our wonderful and only Prime Minister Boris Johnson has given us a, a bit of a wishy-washy uh, points to go on by that will slowly ease us out of the lockdown. And we have a three-step now, much more in detail, how we're going to go back. And one of that is the most crucial from our perspective is that nurseries and uh, primary schools are going to reopen if everything and all uh, levels go down. They will start on the 1st of June. Uh, Following that, today the Chancellor said that the furlough is going to be extended. At the moment, the furlough is providing 80% of the salary up to £2,500. And... To begin with, it was to run until the end of June, and it has now been extended till October. Obviously, there is a lot of uncertainty and insecurity about how people feel and what is going to happen to their jobs and how life will settle back into this new normal. Uh, Given everything that we know, where do you think, Dougie, the next three to six months is going to go for early year settings? Hi, Dougie. Sorry, just before you answer that, um, I don't know if you um, know, but at the moment, there's 37% of our earliest settings are currently open for key workers and the rest are closed. So when you start to give us a little bit of tips for the next three to six months, um, can you keep in mind that most of our settings are actually currently closed? Sure. So I think probably... The first point is, is to break it down into a couple of different phases of, of what is going to happen. And, and I think 
where a lot of businesses are today, if we're being honest, is in a survival mode. And, and that is where the focus of the business is, both from a health perspective, health and well-being of customers and employees, um, but ultimately from a financial perspective, it's about the survival of the business. Um, how will I get money in? How will I pay my bills? And um, how will I pay the bills from last month that I expected to pay with money I earned this month? It isn't coming in anymore. So I think a lot of industries um, have this short-term survival focus um, that they need to do. And then the second phase as they come out of that is, is beginning to think more to the future. And um, what will the next three, six, 12, possibly even 18 months be of a gradual easing of lockdown, of a, a change in consumer behavior before we get back to what a normal might be in, in maybe an 18 month onward uh, time frame. And, and I think the one thing about the impact here is that nobody really knows the answer. So it's a bit of a, an economic and a, a government intervention experiment essentially because none of this activity of mass state intervention, furlough scheme support, this has never happened before. So nobody knows how we will come out the end of this. I think at the start, they, they talked a lot about a V-shaped recovery where the economy would take a very significant and severe dip and then it would recover almost back to where it was. And at that time, the ministers are able to make decisions about the support they give to the economy um, and to businesses and to um, employees and, and the public on the basis of being able to sort of recover quickly and, and then get the economy going again. I think as time has gone on, the perception of how quickly we will bounce back has probably changed. And, and people now, they don't talk about a V dip in, in economic activity. They talk more about an L. We've had a dip and now we'll have a slower and more gradual increase. And whether that's a bit of a, a sawtooth L where we, we come back for a period and then things get locked down. So I, I think we have to be honest that things will not look the way they were very quickly. A few other things, probably the the level of government intervention has been more significant than it, it has been in, in recent memory. And that's probably not going to change. The, the interaction between the state and private enterprises is probably going to be more interlinked than it has before, both from a regulation perspective and from a financial support perspective. So I, I think putting that all into the mix, for obvious reasons, that gives us a lot of uncertainty. And I think businesses need to adapt themselves in two ways. They need to be agile and they need to be prepared for a, a number of different scenarios as this comes out. But they also need to be robust. They need to be prepared to take more hits in the future um, and not come out back of the lockdown on the last legs, if you like. If you come out the back of this lockdown with no money in the bank, all your suppliers chasing you for money, owing money to the tax man, less money coming in from your parents and your customers, that's a very difficult position to be. So you, you do need to plan beyond that immediate survival uh, period. And um, how would you suggest what would you suggest that our managers and owners start with? So, so I think when it comes to financial health, it's, it's a bit about, um, you, could, you could put a bit of an analogy to testing with the virus. If you don't have tests, you don't know how unwell you are. So when a, when a business owner is considering the financial impact, what is their existing health test? How do they test how severely they, they have been impacted? Um, and I think that comes back down to what they had in place before this started. So larger businesses will have specialist finance teams. They will be managing budgets and cash flow carefully. Smaller businesses, the owners need to um, either do that work themselves or they need to get professional help from the outside. So I think 
depending on your starting point in financial planning and financial measurement of a, a budget and a performance against a budget, different people might be starting in different places. And if you are starting with a with an existing budget and you're you're on top of your cash outgoings, then I think it's going to be pretty easy. You go back to what you did before, and then you start measuring the different bits of your financial plan and making changes. If you're from a background that this is new and you're now starting to look at your finances much more closely and much more on a day-to-day -day basis than you had before, then you need to put something in place there. One way to do that is obviously to get professional help from, from a professional accountant who can help set up and, and do that type of planning. Um, but without getting into too detail and being too practical, what I would recommend is splitting down your cost base to start with. The reason I recommend that is the sales and the revenue is the most unpredictable part of what we're talking about. You cannot predict who's going to come back, what the numbers are going to be, how quickly it will be. What you can predict is the costs that are going to go out of your business. And the general approach that I'm seeing across lots of different industries is we sort of have to plan for the worst. If we plan for very low sales for a long period of time, low, low incomes, and we plan a cost base around that that can still survive in that circumstance, if our custom and our, our revenues happen to be higher, we can always gear our business back up. But if you plan the other way around, you plan a cost base, you bring lots of employees back, and you keep all your costs as they were, and the sales are not good enough, that's when you're going to get into to financial challenges. So, so my first recommendation would definitely be to focus on the costs first, because we have to adapt to the revenues. We just can't predict them at this point. Not many people can. So basically, better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, that's definitely one, one way of putting it. Yeah. And, and, and that's do you, sorry, do you think that, um, let's say that nurseries are mostly aware, how long can they, you know, how long ahead can they look? Like if I, if I am a nursery owner and I have my costs and I know in the worst case scenario, I can keep my nursery open maybe for another three months. Then what? Is it easier not to open? Yeah, so I think probably the recommendation at the moment is to plan frequently rather than plan very well. Rather than having one perfect plan that you're really stuck to and you put a lot of time into, you need to have an adaptable plan that you can change. But I think you, you need to take a negative view for at least a 12-month period and you need to say that is your base. If I have significant drop off in my revenues, say maybe 50%, something like that in, in hospitality is, is pretty standard at the moment for forecasts. If my revenues are half what they were, what do I need to do to my cost base to um, survive in that world? And it's not just your cost base, it's also your, your source of funding. So how much pot of gold do I have in the bank today and, and how long can I last with that? Um, and also, what can I take advantage of in terms of government-backed borrowing and lending and, and these type of, of access to cash? So on the one hand, it's about minimizing your losses to as small an amount as you can. And on the other hand, it's about making sure you have access to cash in that worst-case scenario. And then as more pieces of the jigsaw are put in place, as we get more visibility about what our actual revenue levels are, then we can begin to adapt our plan as we go forward. But I would definitely have a sort of a worst case doomsday plan in place now for at least a 12 month period um, to help me sort of plan to that plan. And you talk about um, cash in the bank now and potentially seeing what government um, funding is available. Um, 
I know that the C-bill is um, very readily available at the moment for many businesses and it's actually much, much easier to fill out than um, anyone could have predicted. Do you know whether that um, C-bill option is possible for businesses that already get funding from the government? So a lot of our early years settings do get funding for some of their children. Yeah, that, I think there are definitely restrictions around around the sea bill. I think um, businesses that have are making borrowing of up to fifty thousand pounds with the hundred percent government guarantee, it is very easy to to get that funding from a lot of the banks. Some some of the banks are not even no human is doing a credit um, application. So people outside of the early years industry are, can make applications online, and they're almost getting automated approvals if they meet certain conditions by the bank rather than a human credit assessment. I understand this industry has challenges in terms of who can access these funds and, and understand why the government has these eligibility criteria in place. Um, but I would say reach out to the, the banks to have these conversations to, to understand your eligibility because two reasons for that. One, the banks are on your side. They want to borrow this money for you. They want to do it under the government schemes. Um, so they will do what they can to put this in place. Um, and the second reason is even if you're not eligible for a government back loan, a lot of the banks are, are quite positive on giving small businesses loans without the guarantee. And I think until you ask the question, you don't know um, how, how difficult it's going to be. And, and quite often we'll have a perception that it'll be a complicated process. We need to know our numbers. It's a, a long phone call with a, with a bank credit assessor. But actually, the conversations I've had with people is it's much easier than they thought. And a lot of the money is getting lent out at this point. At the end of the day, the bank always wins. Yeah, well, as long as everyone pays back, then yeah, I guess that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I think they are thinking about it on the long run that, you know, hopefully most businesses who take the loan, they are de doing it because they want to survive and they not only want to survive, but they want to be profitable. Um, what if, um, you know, money has asked a very good question about this. Uh, what if uh, I have just about enough to survive but I'm also in the middle of purchasing a new place because I know personally quite a few nurseries who are just thinking about opening a second setting or a third one or a fourth one or a fifth one. Is it the right time? Well, I think we've got to be honest that transactions in progress, they need to be reassessed. So whatever you had in place before this happened, I, I would probably not advise just carrying on as is. You, you definitely have to go back to the drawing board, revisit your business plan and say, what does this now look like? And that doesn't mean that you can't go ahead and there isn't a deal to be had. Um, but if you take things like commercial rents from landlords, there's a, a general acceptance that, that retail units and hospitality units, um, they will not all survive this and, and there will be closures, there will be redundancies and, and there will be less custom for these businesses. Now, what that essentially means from a landlord's perspective is that retail unit that they, they own and they, they lease out is possibly not worth as much as it was before. So the demand for renting it is, is not as strong and therefore over time that, that has to trickle down to a change in the rental value for that property. So if I was looking at opening a new space, I would definitely be looking um, at renegotiating my lease uh, because I think landlords are very nervous about being held with empty space and no no queue of tenants ready to take um, property off their hands. Um, at a minimum, I'd be looking for rent-free agreements, so so less cash out the door early would definitely support um, a growing business. Um, 
And then I think it's your holistic plan. It's, it's what is your underlying cost base? Can you still make a return on that project with potentially less revenues? Um, and if not, sometimes you just have to put projects on hold and wait till you find the right opportunity. I think it'd be, it'd be exceptionally brave to open up right at this point in time with so much uncertainty. Yeah, and um, I wanted to go back to something you said right at the beginning, Dougie, and it was about um, businesses being agile and prepared. Um, can you give an example of maybe where other industries are being agile and, and how um, the early years industry can maybe take note? Yeah, I, I guess the part of that you can think about your operations. So you need to be agile in your operations and until you understand exactly what the customer wants. So um, if we look at the hospitality industry, um, the face-to-face -face contact might be less and, and people might look for more um, contactless transactions. So maybe click and collect delivery in, in food to go settings is, is the type of thing that they would need to change. So again, not, not an expert in early years industry, but it's, it's reimagining what your customer wants in a new world and adapting your own offering for that whether that's different hours because more people are working from home and therefore they have more flexible requirements for childcare, um, whether that's adapting your, your operation for new health and safety requirements. Um, so I, I think it's, it's about being innovative and about being ready to change. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to carry on on your current path and then suddenly have to change direction and you're starting on the first rung of the ladder. At the same time, you don't want to completely change your direction and find out you went the wrong way. So when I talk about being agile, it's about taking those first steps on the ladder towards changing the way your business operates so that when the, when the cloud lifts and the future becomes a bit clearer, you're already on the steps to, to making that happen. So as we know, the biggest cost for most nurseries is nursery staff. And we also know that most nurseries want permanent staff. Uh, we also know that, that, that their salary is not uh, astronomical, but nonetheless, this is the bigger cost that they can maybe alter. And obviously looking at, as you said, flexibility and flexible working and parents will want flexible hours. Do you think that probably one of the things should be could be need to be looking at those contracts that have been permanent and replacing them with something more flexible like even if we just look at the the economy how it has been we have moved a lot more from you know 80% permanent to 20% temporary to a lot more gig workers a lot more temporary and flexible workers is that the way for early year settings as well mostly for cost cutting purposes yeah, stage. I think I think possibly for cost cutting purposes, but also just for for wider sort of um, appropriate way of doing business. So, so I think the first thing to to realize is this is a, this is something that impacts everyone, and and therefore the workforces are probably much more understanding of the employer's position um, than they might have been in in normal business circumstances. So, for example, furlough was not a term recognized in employment law before it was uh, mentioned by the Chancellor um, a few months ago, and most employers, if not all, did not have any contractual right to place employees on furlough. So a lot of businesses, um, certainly the larger ones, had to update their contracts and get written agreement from their employees that they could go on furlough. Um, so I, I think the first point about looking at your contracts again and potentially having to build in more flexibility, um, looking at your contracted hours, um, but there is an, another side to this as well. Um, 
there's a lot of negative press historically about zero-hour contracts. And, and ultimately, in a situation like this, a, a business whose employees are on zero-hour contracts has complete flexibility. And ultimately, if they have to make their employees redundant um, and reduce their workforce permanently, they again will have much less costs to do that because they don't have to pay out as significant a notice period. Um, but I think we've got to be very careful. I think in a, a situation like this, people will remember for a long time how we behave and how we act. And, and I think it shows you the true colours of, um, of business owners and, and everyone within society at this stage. So although we might be tempted to um, put the business first, and although you might expect a, a finance professional to say that the numbers don't lie and, and you, they have to drive the decisions, there is a people element to this as well that we need to remember um, when we do things like that. So I think my advice would be to try and work out really what is needed in the first place and then to have open and honest conversations with the employees um, and I think you'd be surprised you'll get some good answers. I think we do have to be honest though that ultimately if we are facing lower sales and we can control our cost base in other ways as much as we want, the reality is our headcount is generally going to have to be less. Whether that's less hours or less staff full stop, um, I think it's dangerous to avoid that harsh reality. Um, and therefore, you've got, you've got to think about that. And that, that brings me back to my sort of starting point about measuring financial health, understanding what the, the genuine impact on your business could be and what you might need to do in a, in a negative scenario. So at what point do you need to reduce your headcount? How far do you need to reduce it? And, and in what, what revenue circumstances does that apply? Mm, big decisions for nursery owners. Huge Yes, it's a big burden, I think, for everyone. And I, obviously, we haven't spoken about all the emotional things that come with it because um, mm. it's one thing how the, you know, even I love the perspective. I love, I love the idea that, every, you know, children should go back. But I also understand that a lot of parents will not want to bring their children back and a lot of staff are scared to come back. So in terms of finances, this is also a massive thing that you will have to consider and you will just have to make tough decisions for the time being. Yeah, I think that's, that's the reality of it. And it, it comes back to, to having some sort of financial plan so that you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I did everything I possibly could to support my business, to support my employees, but this is the reality of, of where I am. And ultimately, you, you don't support anyone if your business isn't there. Um, so... I think, again, if if we don't already have budgets in place and, and if we don't already have professional advice for that, maybe we can think about three things. And that's that's putting our costs into, into three different buckets and then considering each of these costs and saying, where can I get my cost saving? If I, if I accept that my sales are going to be less, my revenue will be less, I have to find some cost saving somewhere, that type of exercise would help you find out where to get that cost saving. So the way I think about it is the first bucket is direct costs. So that's basically the more um, children you have in your setting, this cost would move directly with that. So potentially cost of lunches, that type of thing. Um, my second bucket of costs would be semi-variable costs. So these are costs that um, they don't move exactly in line with the number of children who come into the nursery, but they, they do have some bearing on that. So things like staff numbers, number of, of staff is probably in your semi-variable cost base. Um, and then the third bucket is your fixed costs. These are the costs that you're going to pay regardless of whether um, you open the doors in the morning or not. Um, and once you've got your costs in those three buckets, it's basically a case of saying, in my 
doomsday bad scenario revenue, how do these costs change and where do I have an opportunity to reduce this? And that could be cancelling a, a nice to have service that you used to have that, that was good before, but now you can't afford it. It could be saying, actually, my rent to my landlord is just too high now and I need to go back and have a conversation with my landlord about that. And I need a rent-free period or I need a reduction to my, my rent. Um, I would say there's not a, at the moment, a lot of industries are at a standoff in terms of rent payments. So pretty much the whole of the hospitality industry, all the way from McDonald's down to local independent operators, are simply not paying the rent at this point. Um, and that is because the landlords understand that the tenants are in difficult positions and the, the value of their land is not what it was before. The tenants understand that they can't afford to pay the rent, but neither of them know what the rent should be in the middle. And it's, that's, the, that's the standoff that's happening at the moment and it's pretty standard across many industries. So I, I don't see why the early years industry should be any different from having conversations with their landlords and sharing the pain with their, their supply chain. Um, and again, I would just start at my cost base from top to bottom and I would have as many conversations as I could about reducing that cost base. And the, the more I can have a lower operating cost base, the more agile I can be in future, the more resilient my business will be and the more I can potentially support my employees. Mm, really good. I've worked with Dougie a few times and um, direct costs, indirects and fixed costs has uh, helped me many a times. <laughs> and if you're not sure what it is, there's a... There's plenty of sort of simple internet explanations with examples that, that help with that. And ultimately, you know, you know your business better than, than anyone from the outside. So if you can understand those principles and understand that actually it's perfectly normal to have hard conversations with suppliers around the cost of services, um, then that's pretty much all you need to do. I don't know about you, Kate, but um, we are suppliers to the earliest setting. So let's hope there's not too much negotiation going on <laughs> from our clients, uh, but in a good way, of course. <laughs> yes, and I think this will be, you know, even though it's doomsday and we have to prepare for that, it is also giving us huge opportunities. A, that you have to reinvent yourself. You will have to think a lot more about your business in many, many different ways. So if it is about, you know, renegotiating the fee that the, the staff or, you know, the nurseries pay for, for the landlord, if it is about utility bills, if it is about the, your mortgage, if it is about your parents, there are lots of things that you have to rethink and, and just think outside of the box. But obviously, this will also give us just to think a little bit and be a little bit positive, maybe, if we can. Um, it also might give us a chance to, to offer new services or offer services in a different way, because obviously... If I have a nursery with 100 kids, even if the parents don't want to come back, the government says I have to be open. Somehow I have to make ends meet. So once the staff is there, because they, some of them will be on furloughed because I will be open, I can still you know, think about ways and maybe, maybe home learning will come into effect a lot more in the early years than it, you know, similarly to how it has done in, in primary schools. So is it worth investing quite a bit of time also in what other ways we can make some revenue? Yeah, I would say definitely. I, th I think it's difficult to be creative when you're under, under certain pressures. So, so sometimes you've got to sort of build the foundation of, of certainty to start with and then free yourself up to be more creative. Um, I read a case study recently from the US and it was about how 
agriculture is responding to um, the coronavirus impact. And it, and it gave the example of two massive US um, milk producing dairy farms. And one dairy farm had um, basically supplied the restaurant trade and, and its customers had gone and it didn't have a way to get the milk anywhere else. And it was ultimately pouring billions of gallons of milk down the drain. And then the second interview was with pretty much the same type of business, the same size. And they had completely um, reinvented their supply chain, found new customers, found new ways of getting the milk to the customers, and in some cases, given it away for free to, to charities, etc. And, and the whole point of it and the lesson in it is that if you think innovatively about it and you really you get on top of these problems and break down these walls, you will find the right solution. And not everyone will take that approach. So the more they can do it, the better. But um, yeah, with every problem, there is a challenge and it's all about being open to change. I think the mindset is, is key. If you take a, a negative mindset, like this is not fair. Yes, it's not fair. I don't think anyone would argue that this is a fair thing and, and sometimes life is not fair. But you've got two choices. You either sit down and, and watch things crumble around you, a, a business you may have built from scratch, um, or you think innovatively and you give yourself that creative time to understand exactly what your customers will want and how you can adapt to that new world. I love it. Financial director turned life coach. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) We need a bit of everything these days, don't we? We have to be everything to reinvent ourselves and just to stay afloat and be positive about things. Yeah, but such value there, Dougie. Thank you. Such value. I probably just add one other thing. It's, It's not about looking for the magic pill. It's not about saying there's a complete U turn and I will find a completely different thing. It's often actually about lots of small improvements that when they all add up together. So a little bit of cost saving, a little bit of new revenue, a little bit of repositioning my brand, um, a little bit of operational change in my opening hours. And that combination of small improvements is, is what you need. And um, so it's, it's important to be active. It's important for people to be scurrying around and looking for those opportunities and, and fighting to bring the whole thing together. I, I think you do need to have your eyes open. And, and there are a lot of businesses that that are just crossing your, their fingers and waiting for September for everything to come back to, to normal. Um, and I just don't think that is, that is the reality, unfortunately. And just like you said, and Moni said, and we have said it many times, in the end, people will remember, you know, they will remember how you have been as an employer. And if you just sit around and do very little, it will not help you. It will not raise your profile. It will not give you further credibility. And you will be forgotten, basically. But anyway, yeah. to, to talk about <laughs> a little bit happier news again, I'm sure there are still you know, new nurseries who are going to start because obviously, even if you weren't part of a chain, um, I know that there are quite a few businesses out there, whether it's in the early year setting, who had, you know, I was just opening my coffee shop. I was just doing this. And, you know, I was supposed to, I had 20 kids on my waiting list to start in September or June or July. Uh, what are your suggestions for those who are really at the, you know, who are startups, very, very beginning startups? Okay, so I'm going to start with a negative so I can finish on the positive. Um, I think you do, you do have to be honest again about the, the environment that we live in. And, and if you're thinking about investing life savings and, and it has been your dream and you're emotionally connected to it, sometimes it can be difficult to not carry on with that dream. Um, but you do have to be honest about, about what you're, you're getting into. And, and as I said before, revisit the business plans, revisit the, the negotiations and, and make sure you're starting from, a, from the right base. Um, 
I also think that we it, it's easy to hear headlines of, of how the economy will react. We may have a recession, um, GDP may drop. Now, now, these are all macroeconomic measures that, that measure the, the economic performance of the country as a whole. In reality, if you're a, a big national chain, then maybe you are impacted by GDP and a recession because it affects the whole country ultimately. But for small business owners, we tend to operate in microeconomies. So my microeconomy might be completely impacted in a completely different way from another business owner's microeconomy. If my um, nursery is, is next to um, Amazon or one of the businesses that's really benefiting from this, then maybe there's more job creation, there's more demand, and there's more wealth in my local community. Obviously, if I'm next to um, an industry where there's been redundancies and it's not going so well, then, then probably you've got more of a, a decline there. So I don't think you need to jump to a negative conclusion straight away. You've got to consider your local microeconomy, um, and that's conversations with people. Again, it's getting a, a sense of how the economy is feeling, um, and then that can help your decision around, around how you do that. Um, and probably my, my last point is, I think with any significant change, there, there is usually opportunities for new entrants who come in designed for this new world and, and in the hospitality industry, to use as a, an example and an analogy, um, delivery in restaurants was something that disrupted traditional restaurants and quite often it would cause as many problems as it did benefits for restaurant operators. They'd have um, sort of delivery drivers walking through their restaurant and tripping over customers. If you were redesigning a restaurant today, you would do that in a very different way and you'd adapt it for what, what the market today and into the future needs. So that, that gives you an opportunity to design your concept from scratch. Um, and then I think the final point is, as much as I'm advising existing operators with contractual commitments to landlords to renegotiate those, ultimately they are in legal agreements and, and they don't have that much leverage to negotiate everything. Someone entering for the first time and really put in place a, a, an efficient, cheap cost base. That now is a good time to be buying certain services. Maybe marketing and PR agencies have a bit more capacity so they can do sort of good deals for you. So, so I think there's definitely opportunities out there um, for the right business in the right place that's, that's executed in the right way. Here's my thought on that, and this has come from a previous conversation we've had off-air, is we think the City of London might be a little in trouble uh, for a little while now and that people might look at buying maybe an hour outside of London. So new nursery, hour outside of London, scope for capacity? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not going to profess to to have a crystal ball in, in what's happening and I, and I don't think anyone would, but these type of questions about saying what, what has changed in the area that my business operates. So Yes, off, offline I have said I, I'm pretty sceptical about the, the opportunities in central London and, and a few reasons for that. Um, I think if we've got quarantine on international air travel, the City of London is a, is a hub of international business and travel. Um, if the commute into London is restricted because of the tube, if the international business people are not coming back as often, you're just literally going to find a, a, a reduction in footfall there. And I'm not sure how many nurseries are based in the city of London and how applicable this is, but it's just a good example of um, businesses based there are going to expect an in impact. And completely, as you said, if, if people are going to want to live in, in different areas in future, and again, it's very difficult to predict the housing market, it tends to react much more slowly to economic changes than, than other, other parts of the, the economy. 
Um, but yeah, you could see changes in house prices in different areas, movement of wealth, etc. So, so there will be opportunities and there will be areas that struggle and it's about assessing, assessing all of that. Um, and alongside that, you've also got to think of the supply. If there was enough customers for three settings before, and now there's half the customers but only one setting, still potentially better for that one setting. So, so looking at the competition and, and being able to assess how that may play out also has quite a, an important part on, on that. But we can only control the things we can control. And, and again, that's why I, I come back to a um, base case of cost control. And if the opportunity is better, it's much easier to ramp your business up for that opportunity than it is to, to control costs if, if your revenues aren't there. Oh, well, thank you to both of you, both Marnie and Dougie. Thank you for joining me this evening. Uh, for all those of you who have been listening, please remember your costs, your three buckets, be agile and be flexible. And we hope that you will listen to another one of our Inspiring Nurseries podcasts very soon. Thank you very much, Dougie, for coming and giving us some financial, financial advice. And thank you, for Mani, for joining me tonight as well. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dougie. No problem. Thank you. Good to talk to you.